everyone, and welcome to episode 52 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today my guest is Julia Mortikova. Julia is a concert pianist, professor, and chair of the Department of Music at the Mississippi University for Women, and founder and artistic director of the International Annual Music by Women Festival. In this episode, Julia and I discuss her life and career, becoming an international administrator in music, women in music leadership positions, and supporting new music by women composers. So please like and share this episode with your friends. Please make sure you're following all of our social media accounts. And if you're interested in being a guest on the pod, please send your bio to musicherstorypod at gmail.com. And I will see you next Monday. My name is Julia Martikova. I'm a pianist. I'm also a professor and an administrator. I currently serve as the chair of the Department of Music at the Mississippi University for Women. And I'm also the founder and artistic director of the annual international Music by Women Festival. I'm very excited to be here because I love this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you here. So what got you started in music in the first place? How'd you get your start? My mother is a composer and a pianist, um, and we are both from Moscow, Russia. Uh, So she uh, was actually the last student of Aram Kachaturian, the Moscow Conservatory. Um, And so it kind of makes sense that her daughter would also be musically inclined, I guess. And so I started playing the piano when I was three. Um, And I guess I've always wanted to be a concert pianist. Um, I did go through periods in my life where I considered other career avenues, but I was never going to stop playing the piano and performing. So I guess that was a very easy decision from that point of view. Um, and being in Russia, it was a pretty traditional route. You, I think uh, at three years old, you start playing and you're put in kind of an ear training type program and then you start more serious lessons. And then I went to a specialized music school. And then um, we immigrated to the United States when I was 11 uh, because my mother married my stepfather. Um, and I should say my mother's name is Olga Harris. <laughs> she said that. Um, but anyway, so we um, moved to the United States to a very small town in South Carolina. Um, and that's kind of where we began our American life. Um, and in South Carolina, uh, we, we had a really hard time finding a, a teacher for me um, who was sort of um, at the level that they could really you know, teach me a lot of things and, and help me progress because I was pretty advanced as a piano student. But then we were very fortunate. We found a wonderful piano teacher in, in Greenville, South Carolina, whose name is Fabio Perini. He's wonderful. Um, and so I studied with him and, and then I really wanted to, to be more involved in music and, and, and have more friends who were doing the same sort of thing. And so I attended the South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts after my, um, I think it was 11th grade. And I really fell in love with that idea of it's a five week uh, summer program of living with other artists, being with other artists. And so then an opportunity came to apply for Interlochen Arts Academy, boarding school in Michigan. And so I 
really kind of jumped on that opportunity. I applied, I was accepted, I got a scholarship. I was so excited. I went there. And um, I think to me, that was it. The rest was history. Interlock can really change my life. I just, that's just kind of the people who I wanted to be around as other musicians, other artists. Um, and so from then on, um, I knew I was going to be uh, majoring in piano when I went to college. Um, so I went to uh, Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville. Um, and I majored in piano performance. Um, and then um, as I was studying there, I really fell in love with other things such as philosophy and I had a double major in philosophy. And that's sort of a thing that runs through my whole career. Um, my dissertation from the University of Miami was actually on applying the existential philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre to piano teaching in a higher educational setting. So I kind of kept the philosophy going in addition to my uh, piano studies. But one thing that was really interesting, I think, in my career, and one advice I'd like to give to anyone who would ever ask me for any, is do explore as a student. Don't, don't just be in a mold where I'm just going to sit in my practice room for 12 hours a day and not do anything. So I explore I was a big activist on uh, living wage campaign, on the peace campaign, because this was during right before the Iraqi war started, and we were really kind of mobilizing to prevent that from happening. Um, and so because of all that, I was kind of with a lot of other students doing a lot of other things. And I used to help out um, student government when they were they were the, the school of music had a student council and they would ask for help. And so eventually there came a point where they were having elections and they said, well, you know, we, we were looking for someone to run for president. We would like you to do it. And so my whole reaction was, I have no idea what, you know, student council does, student government does. I'm not really interested. But they said, well, no, no, no. You know, you really care. You want to help. You're always here volunteering, cleaning practice rooms and whatever we need. So I think you'll be a good person. So like, okay. So I ran and um, <laughs> I became president of the student council. And so essentially that sort of <laughs> led me to being an administrator later on, because what happened was I was president of student council graduate from Vanderbilt, decided to pursue. And while I was at Vanderbilt and on all the time prior, I just knew I wanted to perform and be a pianist. I had no idea what else I wanted to do in order to actually make money doing it. You know, <laughs> <Never thought. laughs> um, And so I guess I'm an idealist, you can say. So then I went to NYU, New York University for my master's degree. I love New York and I was from Moscow. So I was a big city girl. So I wanted to go back to a big city. Um, and so I went to NYU and at NYU, I had an opportunity to, to be an adjunct uh, instructor teaching. That was sort of kind of the sort of an assistantship they gave to students back then. Um, and I fell in love with it. I had the most amazing students that inspired me. And so I thought, okay, this is awesome. You know, I can play the piano and I can become a college professor. This is going to be great. And, um, but all this time I kept thinking, well, you know, I, I'm going to focus on my music. I'm not going to do any of the student council, government stuff, whatever that is, you know, that's in the past. And <laughs> I think my kind of um, life story is I've always kind of been pulled into leadership positions, even when I really wasn't looking for them. And so what happened is I was, as I was going to school at NYU, I would walk by and the student government would have some kind of a table set up. Oh, here's an info session, join student government. I was like, this is not it. I'm not doing this again. You know, I'm focusing on my music. I'm in New York. This is, this is it. So then, you know, a week later, I would walk by and they're there again. And so I just felt like there was some kind of a calling, you know, calling me to go and talk to them. So I went and I talked to them. I said, okay, well, you know, I've, I've had some experience. What, you know, what positions are you looking for? And like, well, we're looking for president. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, this is, you know. So I, I ran for president and I, and, I, and I won that. And I was president of the Stein. It was back then, it was the Steinhardt School of Education. Now it's the Steinhardt School of Arts, Culture, something, something, something. It's a really long name. But it was the Steinhardt School. <clears throat> so I was um, president of that student government organization. 
Then I decided to pursue my doctoral studies at the University of Miami. Um, and I, I went there. And at that point, I just kind of gave up trying to suppress the inner leader in me. And, <laughs> and I automatically kind of joined the Graduate Student Association. I became a senator representing the piano department. And I then eventually became the president of the Graduate Student Association of University of Miami. I served for two terms and then that led me to then, because all these graduate organizations are members of a large organization called the National Association of Graduate Professional Students, NAGPS. So I got involved in that and I be eventually became president and CEO of that as well. <laughs> this is all while I'm a student at the University of Miami doing my doctorate. Um, and so I kind of had these parallel lives where on the one hand, I was a pianist, but it was very de de dedicated to my, you know, however many, I think we had to get five recitals, you know, I had to write my dissertation, which I mentioned, do all that. But then I had this other, thing that I love, which was student government. And that, that's what I say. I really encourage people to to not be closed off to maybe if you're thinking about trying something, joining something, studying something, reading something that may be completely different from what anyone else you know is doing, go for it. Because the worst thing that can happen is you may not like it and that's it. But it might actually kind of open a new path for you, uh, help you discover something that you may not you know, have thought of doing before. And so I graduated from the University of Miami. Um, I actually worked for a nonprofit in Washington, DC. Um, and that nonprofit actually um, kind of advocated for open access to research policies, because one of the things I did as the president of the National Association of Graduate Professional Students, as well as the president of the Miami GSA, is we would go to uh, Washington, DC. We would lobby Congress. We had these legislative action days twice a year. I actually. Uh, kind of trained others how to do that at a certain point because I became sort of so well versed in it. So all these things kind of led me to take this job and I was doing the same things I was doing in these organizations as a volunteer, but now I was working for this nonprofit because we worked with them before and I was actually getting paid to do it. And then um, <laughs> this is kind of a long story. Um, I, I do think it's interesting. That's that's why I like to tell it because it is unique. It's, it's mm -hmm. not a typical musician story. So um, the final thing I'll throw in there, in addition to exploring, it doesn't just mean go join an organization. It's also why I was at the University of Miami. I was, of course, involved in, in other things, musically speaking. So we started an MTNA collegiate chapter, Music Teachers National Station, but a college chapter of that. And, and I was president of that. And so one day I was promoting MTNA collegiate chapter in front of one of my wonderful mentors, Dennis Cam at University of Miami, who has since passed away. But he was just a wonderful mentor. So many people, many generations of students there. He was a composer. Um, and so he said, well, you're promoting this organization. Why don't everyone join the College Music Society? That's the big organization that kind of encompasses everything in music, not just, you know, piano teachers or, or things like that. And so um, I never heard of the College Music Society. So, of course, that night I went to the library. I joined. I, I saw the, they have these conferences. I submitted a paper. I got in. And so I started going to these conferences my, as a first year doctoral student because of uh, Dr. Camp's suggestion, and I really highly, strongly encourage everyone who is a student, undergraduate, graduate, please join these organizations, please be active because it does help you. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because I continued presenting papers, research all the way through my doctoral studies. And at one point I was at a national conference, National College Music Society conference presenting, and there was another presenter, uh, uh, Dr. Bernardo Scaramboni, who was also presenting, he was already a faculty member. I was still a student, but we were presenting on a similar topic. So we decided that maybe for next year, we would collaborate on something together. So the following year, we submitted a proposal. It got in, so we co-presented at a national conference of the College Music Society. And the reason that I mentioned that is because after I graduated and I was working for this nonprofit, I really wanted to get back into higher ed. I really missed um, being more active in music. Is um, 
you know, uh, Dr. Scramboni was leaving his position and, and he called me and he said, there's this position, you know, um, if you like, I'll put in a good word for you. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, and he did. And, and that was essentially what led me to, to having my first job, um, which was at Alcorn State University teaching, uh, teaching piano and teaching music history. Another thing I should mention is as I was at the University of Miami, um, we had this amazing uh, uh, graduate studies dean um, at Asmus, and he, he said two things. Number one, be expert by the time you graduate. Be expert in something, you know, something outside of your field. Number two, have a minor or a cognitive something outside of just your field. And so I had a minor in musicology, and that really helped me get this first job because I was teaching piano and music history. So, of course, I was qualified. <laughs> where, you know, a lot of pianists just focus on playing the piano they, they're, or, or chamber music or something related. But the idea that, that you had something that was not as related, um, I think, really kind of played played a role. And so um, all of that kind of led me to uh, Mississippi. I was at Alcorn State University. I was there for two years. Then my current position became available at the Mississippi University for Women. And um, I had no idea what a department chair does. I'll be honest with you. And I think most people don't. And that's that's just, that's fine. You know, it's a different, yeah. it's a completely different job being a professor and being an administrator. But I had all this leadership experience because in student government, I learned how to obviously lead people, uh, how to organize major events. I host national, regional conferences over the country, legislative action days, lobby Congress. I knew how to manage budgets of all sizes. So all of these things are really what a department chair sort of does, except in a different, different level. Um, and so I applied for this job, kind of threw my head in the ring, didn't really know <laughs> what was going to happen. Another thing that appealed to me is, even though it is a co-educational institution now, it's been that way since 1982, it was the first public higher education institution for women in the country. And so I thought, well, you know, I specialize as a pianist, I specialize in performing women composers. That, that's been my niche, and that's a story I can tell later if you're interested. But I thought, wow, you know, here's this place that actually is kind of a leader in educating women historically and and wow. I thought this would be good for me to work there and so when i actually interviewed for the job i interviewed with the president i pitched this idea to him of having a festival of music by women that was an idea that i thought would be kind of unique because there weren't that many festivals and there really aren't that many now dedicated to this topic um and so you know that's kind of what got me where i am today and so kind of a long life story but i <laughs> I do like to throw it in there because I think a lot of people don't think about things like student government as having a pivotal role in a musician's career. Yeah, and I, I think you brought up a lot of really great points. And, and, and the biggest point that I thought of when you were telling your story was this idea of just being a multifaceted musician and not just like focusing on the one thing, having other skill sets when you got involved in things like, you know, your student government. And then eventually you were winning presidential positions and, and other forms of that sort of leadership as well. I, I think that's something that a lot of people overlook. They think, oh, if I just spend 12 hours a day in a practice room and I don't talk to anyone and I don't do anything else. I'm doing something, <laughs> right? And so I think that that big thought that you were bringing out and telling your story was the importance of being a multifaceted musician. Absolutely. And that also goes as to getting out of your practice room and meeting people from other fields. That's why I love the College Music Society. And that's why I love organizing this festival, which, which I would love to also talk about later on, if you give me the opportunity to do so. But this idea of if you're a performer, don't just hang out with other pianists. 
Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Have a, a duet? I mean, sure. But outside of that, you, know, you, <laughs> you need to really be friends with composers, right? <laughs> so yeah. they can hear your music. Be friends with other instruments. Uh, think of creative ways that you can all work together to to maybe make something something new. I think that's that's very valuable piece of advice that I think students don't think of that. They kind of stay in their own little sphere. And, you know, certainly I think what got me out of my kind of comfort zone was was these organizations. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I certainly didn't know a lot of singers when I was in school. I didn't know a lot of their orchestral. I mean, I knew them. Right. But I didn't. I I think my friends were mostly people who either were pianists or people who actually were in an organization with. And I think that's that's an important thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And as a chair of the Department of Music at the university or the Mississippi University for Women. So, you know, that's a university for a, a facet of our population for women. How important is female representation in music, especially at your institution? I think um, representation of of women, especially in leadership positions, is is really really important. And um, in preparation for this interview, I actually looked up some statistics because um, most music schools are accredited by the National Association of, of Schools of Music. It, it has about 639 members and um, it oversees accreditation. So it sets standards for education, various degrees that music institutions award. But it also has all its members. It has a conference. It has a lot of wonderful things. But it also has um, the statistical data survey that every school fills out mm -hmm. every year. Um, and I looked up information about gender in music executive leadership because I, I became very curious in preparation for this podcast. And so <laughs> I love for it. 29, well, and this is an important topic because, for example, at NASM, we actually have um, a very popular session called uh, um, Women's Women Executive Roundtable. And uh, most of the women actually attend and, and it's wonderful. It's my favorite session at the annual event. Um, because there's still not anywhere close to as many women as there are men. So in terms of actual data, there are 72% men and 28% women in leadership yeah. right now. And what's interesting is it's also, um, if, if it's a smaller unit, so for example, in a private uh, college, or one to 50 uh, student majors, it's 38% women. But if it's in our larger institution, so if it's a private college of 201, uh, plus music major. It's, it's only 18%. And for public institutions, if it's one to 100, and that's my institution, that's 32.6% uh, women. But if you go to a, a large public institution, 401 uh, plus, um, it's only 13% women. Wow. So wow. what that says, anyone can make their own conclusions, but um, it does seem that there are a lot uh, obviously, there are fewer women than men in musical leadership positions, but it's also that there are even fewer of them, the larger the institution is, it doesn't matter if it's private or public. And so as we're talking about this idea of lack of representation, what are some issues or, you know, projects that you tackle in your current position, either either per personally or professionally with regards to this idea of representation? Well, I think creating a space for for women and uh, for 
celebrating women in music, not necessarily for women administrators necessarily, but just celebrating women's achievements in music. That was sort of the idea for the festival, because since I was in grad school, I started specializing in performing music by women. I discovered Cecil Chaminade, and that was my first kind of induction into understanding this great historical injustice that, that that's going on where you had someone who was really famous really renowned performed published great career everybody knew who she was and then history just kind of erased her and yeah. so that made me really angry <laughs> because yeah. I thought, this is not fair you know i can't imagine you have this great career you succeed right this male-dominated industry and then everybody just erases your achievements so I started performing music by women and I got to kind of specialize in more and more of their works. And um, then of course I, I taught this to my students. I, um, I wanted to teach a class music by women, which I have, but I also just kind of realized I'm one person. I can only do so much, you know? Why don't I create this space for other people to, to come and kind of contribute their own research, their own passion, their own work, their own ideas, their own performances. And, and let's kind of build this. Um, it's a festival that we have, but it's a movement. It's I, I think of it as a movement because what happens is every year. So this is the Music by Women Festival. It started in 2017. That was the first one. We're in our fifth year now. Every year we come together and it's about 200 people from all around the world. We come together, there's concerts. So last year when it was in person, we had 15 recitals, five recitals a day over a three day period. And between recitals, we have lecture recitals and papers. Uh, so it's an academic uh, presentation type setting. And um, what happens is people really get inspired. They hear works by a historic composer who they don't know, and they try to get the music for their instrument, or they meet a composer and, and they love their work and they ask them to compose for their instrument, or actually the comp composers who are looking for performers, um, all their works are selected by the performers through a blind review process. And so hmm. the, the performers really meet their composer at the festival. And they have no idea who they are. And it's it's really, I mean, it's remarkable in terms of also how, how fair it is because there is no age limit. So we have composers who, of course, are very established, but we also have composers who are graduate students, some undergraduate students, some who are retired. So everybody has an equal chance. And usually the performers end up, you know, kind of almost fighting for this. <laughs> for this music because it's so great yeah. um and so the music continues throughout the year it spreads to the home communities of the performers who take it on the road they submit it to other conferences they perform it in other engagements and so it's sort of a catalyst the, this festival and i think that's probably my greatest contribution is really um kind of first of all exposing the world to the music because i think the music speaks for itself i don't <laughs> even think you really need to you know justify it or even i mean of course we do but it's just great great works that kind of we are robbed of because we don't know about them but also just i think it's important because i have had students um who are women who would tell me why well, i thought about taking composition but you know i i don't really know many composers who are women historically and you know, <laughs> like, wow, Clara Schumann was saying this in the 19th century, and here we are today. This yeah. Is wrong. Um, so, you know, that idea of kind of having mentors and having, having 
just knowing your own history that there were so many women before you. And so this year, um, since I'm talking about the festival, this year the festival is all virtual um, and it's 31 days of just concerts. So every concert, every night at 7.30 p.m. Central Time, we release a concert um, and it remains online. Um, so you can watch it at any time. You can catch up on all the concerts you've missed so far, if you like. Um, and it will remain online past the festival because our idea is not only to get the music out there, but also to kind of create a repository of music by women composers online. And this is on our website, muw.edu slash music by women. Um, the schedule is in there and the videos are embedded. Also, if you're on YouTube, um, it is a music by women festival channel. That's excellent. That's, that's awesome. I was actually about to ask that. I was going to be like, hey, how can people access that festival this year? Because I know you had mentioned to me before that it was virtual. So that's excellent that you provided all of that information. That's great. Um, I, I think it's a wonderful idea. I think it's an amazing festival. I think everybody should absolutely check it out. It is amazing. And it's also unfortunate that it is one of a kind. I wish we had more celebrations of women and of people of color in music as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, There are a lot more now, I think, than there used to be. But it's oh, yeah. still... You know, I always say when people ask me, what is the goal for the festival? What is the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is not to have the festival <laughs> because it's no longer needed because you would go to a concert and you have an equal number of uh, male and female names in the composer column. But since mm -hmm. we're not there yet, we're going to continue doing this until until that happens. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. And you're also involved with the the International Alliance for Women in Music. So can you talk a little bit about what the International Alliance for Women in Music is and what you do as a part of that organization? Sure. So it's an international organization and it's for women in any sphere of music. So composers, performers, anyone who is a woman in working in music. Um, students, of course, and uh, some of the things they do is they they host um, events, so they have uh, concerts, um, they have a journal, um, which comes out several times a year, and that journal features articles and reviews and, and various interesting scholarly um, contributions. Um, and it's also an opportunity really for, for women to, to network and to build a community. And so I'm actually, I just became a membership chair. I actually just joined the board and became membership chair started in January. Um, and so one of my uh, initiatives would be to kind of see how we can best help our members and recruit new members. What do women in music really need right now? And I think that will probably entail aspects of networking and maybe performer composer collaborations because I'm very passionate about that. Uh, for example, in the festival where I live is it's pretty rural area so we don't have a lot of performers um, other, you know instruments we obviously have piano we have voice but we don't have a lot of other instruments and so what I did is I put out when I first started the festival in 2017 a, a call for volunteer performers all over the United States and and we you know we had a list of I think 50 or so names of people who are willing to come here from all around the country on their own time, on their own dime to perform and premiere works by new works by women composers who they don't know, <laughs> right? So it's, um, I think that kind of um, support and not just support of women, but support of these great works by women is sort of what I'm very passionate about. Um, and that's kind of where I sort of see also 
uh, joining International Alliance of Women in Music um, sort of spearheading. Um, I'm still kind of still brainstorming on possibilities, but that's kind of what I see um, today as sort of the, the idea, because I do think us talking and, for example, this podcast, people sharing their stories is, is so important. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for, for, for younger women, too. I, I'm in education. I think it's people need to hear other people's stories. Um, I think that's invaluable. Well, that and not, not only that, but you're also creating a community and a support system for people as well. Um, oftentimes, I think one of the issues with, with women in the professional field of music, whatever field you are in um, within music, is the feeling of isolation, um, especially when you are working in a field that is a very male dominated, depending on your profession. That feeling of isolation is something that we have to combat a lot. And so in creating alliances or organizations like this is so important to develop that sense of community and you know, be able to communicate with others who've gone through similar experiences. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so you're not only a member of that, but you're also, you had mentioned the College Music Society uh, quite a few times, and you are the president of the, the Southern region of College Music Society. Can you talk a little bit more about what that organization is and, and your involvement in it as well? Absolutely. I'm very passionate about College Music Society because it's played a pivotal role in my career, as I've already uh, mentioned. It is mm -hmm. a really fun organization to be a member of because it is for anyone involved in academia, and that also involves students, undergraduate and graduate students, retired academics, independent musicians. Um, but what's what makes it unique is that it's performers, composers, theorists, uh, music engineers, um, let's see, his, uh, musicologists, I mean, you name it, anyone in the sphere of music. And what they do is they have regional conferences and they have a national conference once once a year. Um, but the cool thing about the regional conferences is you can present or attend any region's conference. So most years I try to go and present at several, not just the Southern chapter, which I'm a part of, but I've been to the Northeast chapter, to the South Central chapter, uh, to the West Coast chapter. So um, it's it's an opportunity to really meet people. And during the conferences, they have uh, papers, lecture recitals, panels, um, various different types of discussions, uh, particularly at the national conference. I, I, I couldn't even name all of them because there's so many different <laughs> different ones. Um, there is fishbowl discussions, there is lightning talks, which are very fast presentations. So all kinds of different things. They also have concerts for performers, where performers perform concerts for composers, where composers have their works performed. There is lecture recitals, where people can perform and present their works. There are standalone performances, where you can just perform for 20 minutes, and you don't necessarily have to say anything. It's just a session where people perform, and that's it. Um, but there's also ways you can perform on a concert. Um, so, and of course, the papers are typical research presentations. So it's a wonderful way to kind of hear about different things in music. And what I love about it is I learn something new every year when I attend these conferences, um, because it really, as we were talking about earlier, gets me out of my own comfort zone, right? And introduces yeah. me to <laughs> what other people are doing um, and, and, and thinking about. And 
Um, and I think that's very important for us, A, for networking, uh, professional networking, for future collaborations, but also to help our students. Uh, because I always say one person doesn't have solutions to everything, right? I mean, that would be ridiculous to think that one person could. So we have to have input from other musicians, from other places to, to really come up with best practices of what to do in any particular situation. And so that's what the College Music Society provides is this amazing networking opportunity to really meet colleagues from everywhere. People are very active in it, um, but also to just really hear about what's happening outside of one's sphere. And there's really some really cool stuff happening all the time that that are um, maybe colleagues in musicology are doing or in theory are doing or in other places. And so I really highly suggest anyone check it out. The website is music.org in case you're interested. Um, and then there's regional chapters, but as I mentioned, you can actually submit uh, submit proposals, abstracts for lecture recitals, papers, performances, submit your scores if you're a composer, really to any region. Um, and, and, and then also to the national one, of course. That's awesome. That's such a, such a great resource for so many as well. And we were talking a lot today about, you know, representation for women, especially in administrative or higher ed roles. So what pieces of advice could you give to young women who are attempting to pursue positions at the music administrative or higher ed level? Sure, that's a that's a great question. And as I mentioned, I always say everything I learned uh, about being administrator, I really learned in student government. It wasn't really a class that you could really take, that <laughs> especially as a musician. But I, I thought I would kind of run through sort of the major areas that um, fall within my purview as department chair. And I think that will give people some ideas of, of what, what the job sort of entails. Because as I said, when I applied for the job as a faculty member, I had really no idea what a chair does. Um, and there are a lot of things that are pretty similar, no matter what discipline you're in, whether you're music or history or biology. And then there are other things that are specific to our discipline. So some of the things that uh, kind of most chairs do, budget oversight. So that's managing uh, your university accounts, your foundation accounts, uh, scholarship accounts, um, awarding scholarships, guest artists, you know, making sure that they're paid, things like this keeping track of all of that, uh, working with faculty. And that's everything from faculty recruitment to interviewing faculty, hiring faculty, evaluating faculty every year, overseeing their tenure and or promotion processes. Um, so mentoring faculty, all, all everything having to do with faculty affairs. Same thing for the staff. Um, they don't have tenure and promotion, but everything else they do have. Um, students, so for students, that would be student recruitment. Um, so I, I'm the person who actually is in charge of admit, auditioning students, admitting students, awarding them the scholarship, uh, making sure they accept, um, uh, kind of doing orientations for them when they come in. Um, I'm the person that they come to if they have a problem, if they need help, if they need, you know, extra resources. Um, so I'm really kind of there as if a student needs to go somewhere, they go to the administrator. <laughs> um, and obviously overseeing their progress in the degree, um, communicating with them in case something is, is not going well, um, you know, celebrating their graduation with them, um, all of those wonderful things. Um, curriculum, so in, in, in kind of in line with that, that is 
overseeing, uh, first of all, creating the schedules for the following semester, who's teaching what, what's offered, and what physical room is offered, uh, curriculum on a larger scale, so creating new uh, degree tracks. So for example, since I've been here, when I came here, it was a piano and voice uh, um, faculty with degrees in music ed, choral only, and uh, um, a BM in music therapy, and a BA in music. Now we've created, because was, everything I do is generated by student interest, so because of that, we've been able to create a BA in music tracks in performance, BA in music tracks in composition, so we have composition. We started woodwinds, we started brass, so we have all those instruments now. Started a jazz ensemble, started a wind ensemble, so we have large instrumental ensembles now, started an opera program. Um, so also revised delivery methods of courses, how they were taught, you know, individually or in a group, created a music ed um, instrumental track, which is in its final stages of approval right now. I'm working on that for our accrediting body. Um, so kind of a lot of different things, you know, that changed the curriculum a lot and that opened a lot of doors for students who may not have considered us before. Uh, but all of that was kind of generated because I would go out and I would recruit students and I had a student come up to me and said, oh, I want to do composition. Do you have composition? And I said, well, I don't. But if, if you come here, we will create it for you. <laughs> and so we did. Um, and so one of the things I was also able to do because I'm very passionate about students' access to, to resources and socioeconomic equality and things like this. So in addition to making sure my students have all the music scholarships, university scholarships, I joined all these music clubs so I could recommend them for outside scholarships. I was able to create a program where students can receive scholarships to apply for conferences, to attend, present, or to go to competitions. Some of these competitions are you know $150 to enter. I mean, who has that yeah. much money? Right? Um, and so as a result of that, all these students, we've had students win state competitions numerous times in, in piano, in the composition, regional competitions in voice. We just had a composition student win the MTNA Music National Association Regional uh, Division. So she's the best composer in the South. We're very proud of her. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> we've had students had works read by the Mississippi Symphony Orchestra multiple times. And, you know, we've had the composition program for three years now and, uh, you know, for most of the time we had students have their works read by the, the biggest orchestra, professional orchestra in the state. So very proud of, of, of all that. Um, so yes, so curriculum is a big part of it. Um, artistic oversight, so planning the calendar of events, um, planning also events, you know, faculty events, student concerts, guest artists, making sure everybody gets paid who needs to get paid, uh, reserving our beautiful recital hall, which is Gosson Auditorium. Um, building management, that's a fun one. So I, we have a beautiful, <laughs> we have a beautiful music building, uh, four stories in one side, three stories, in another built in 1905. So in charge of, I'm in charge of basically taking care of it. So if, if anything is broken, I'm the one that kind of oversees how we fix it. Um, I'm in charge of what happens in what classroom and the recital hall, um, if we need to purchase something. So, uh, one of the things I can talk about is when I first started here, the transition to being an administrator. Um, <laughs> it's a kind of funny story, but one of the things I had to do is we were moving to this building that was newly renovated. And this was when I started, I started in July. We were moving into the building, if you can imagine, October, November, so mid-semester, uh, from across campus. We had a grand opening November 2nd as we were still moving into the building. So some of the grand opening we had to stage because we weren't actually physically even teaching in there yet. 
Um, but so one of the things I discovered when I when I came into the building is that there were no whiteboards right in the classrooms. So how are you going to teach theory if you know if you don't have anything to to write on? <laughs> um, there were no trash cans, and so I had to oversee. I literally well, with the trash cans, it was hilarious. I literally had to go to um, Lowe's and and you know purchase all the trash cans. I remember I had these carts, and I would you know load me and my administrative assistant would load up all these uh, trash cans that we selected and. Um, our staff helped us bring them bring them back to campus. Um, and so <laughs> part of that, why that's important is because I think sometimes as administrators, I think as faculty, faculty are really focused on their own sphere. So their own kind of mm -hmm. students, their teaching, their research. Uh, whereas I think administrators are focused on kind of everyone else you know they're focused on helping i always say it's kind of like we are we we we're the captains of the ship you know we we make sure we stay on course we, we have a course we're not deviating from the course if anything happens <laughs> we can get back on course we keep the things running um and so one of the things with like with the whiteboards we i was these whiteboards were being delivered by 18 wheeler trucks who kind of at that time i didn't have an administrative assistant so they would just call me on my cell phone whenever they would arrive they had to arrive to a different part of campus whenever i was teaching a piano lesson so my lessons were always interrupted by me overseeing these deliveries and you know having them take them to the building having our movers carry them up the stairs and this was all kind of and so it was so funny because actually one of my evaluations for that semester was you know i really enjoyed piano lessons because the faculty member the, the professor was so busy but that made the time that we had so special <laughs> it felt so bad because you know all these lessons were interrupted because i was running around trying to get the building ready but that's kind of part of the job. And finally, accreditation. So overseeing everything from doing a self-study, um, writing a self-study, overseeing and accrediting bodies visit, to being the official representative, to going to the annual meeting, voting, uh, deciding upon standards that everybody votes on, which are standards that kind of guide how we educate students and curriculum, things like this. And actually, I should mention for the accrediting portion, I became very involved with that and very passionate about that because we were re-accredited my second year in position and I it was just very helpful and I love that process. So I became an on-site evaluator on behalf of the NASM's Commission on Accreditation myself. And so I do perform these visits and try to help other schools identify things that they can do better or that they're great in. And I also serve as the chair of my region and on the NASM board of directors because of that. So that's kind of a long overview of what a department chair does, but I, I think it is interesting to know that because it is it is a different job. And so for us, I think carving out time for our own research is, you know, you kind of have to fight for it. And <laughs> or and then when I say research, I also mean performing, you know, anything creative activity. Um, and I think it's also being being a, uh, a faculty member ourselves. Sometimes we feel like our own teaching sort of suffers, and then that's kind of really unfortunate. But I think. One of the skills outside of all the things I mentioned, obviously, you can apply that to, you know, where you can find these skills, but I think it's very important to be organized and to plan things ahead. I like to say if someone has something due April 15th, they may just do it April 15th. But have, if I have something due April 15th, it's going to get done by April 1st, because between April 1st and April 15th, there's going to be some major, you know, emergency tsunami that's going to walk through my door and it's going <laughs> to requiring yeah. identity and that project is not going to get done so um i think that would be the um the big the big thing that's unique about administration yeah wonderful things and and you've described so well how much is entailed in that how much influence you have 
and how you have to really be able to work with other people, get them to collaborate with one another. You're talking about like faculty are often in their own little bubbles, but getting everybody to work together for the common good of helping students and progressing the program further. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's very important to have uh, conversations, to have meetings and to have conversations and meetings with students too. I really try mm -hmm. to, to have their input, to have them involved. Um, last semester, we, I mean, we've been virtual since last year, cause that was the decision we made as a faculty. We just didn't feel good about going back in person. So most of our classes are virtual. We have a couple in person, but most of them are virtual. So I actually tried, I had multiple meetings with students. I had a virtual lounge for students every Tuesday night at 7 PM, they could log in and I would be there. And I had a couple of people who logged in pretty regularly, but you know, I just, I, I wanted to make sure that, that they knew I was available because one thing that happens when we're in person is they often, they don't come by to my office, but they see me in the hallway and they talk to me or I kind of, and that, I think that's one thing that's really important about being an administrator. You have to have your ear to the ground. And yeah. that's why I think it's really good to teach because then you actually interact with students. I think that's the best way. But also I think it's really important for students to know who they can go to, um, who who's there for them. So no one's suffering in silence, you know? I, I think one thing that's really heartbreaking is if you have a student who comes to you and is like, well, I'm going to drop out. Uh, why? Well, because, you know, I don't have money to pay tuition. And he's like, why didn't you tell me? You know, I'll find you the money. <laughs> because they yeah. don't realize that there's even that opportunity. And I can understand why. Um, so I think it's, I mean, that's my, if you ask me what I love about, and this is what I love about my job, being able to help students. Um, I, I can be like Santa Claus, you know, <laughs> if someone isn't, uh, in need or needs help or has an issue, um, I will do my best to address it. And most of the time I can. And so that's kind of a cool thing about it. And that's what makes it, I think everything else worth it, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Good for you. <laughs> and, um, I, yeah, I do, I do think you, you bring up a good point of, Finding the ability to communicate with students um, and have them understand, okay, this is where I need to go if I need help or being that person for them and not, you know, just being in your office all the time, being around the students, making sure that like, if they know that they're having an issue that they have someone that they can talk to, I think is so great. And, and something that a lot of people I feel like take for granted that you do do that because um, a lot of places don't, right? <laughs> you never see the administration in a lot of schools. You never see them interacting with students. And it's really unfortunate. Absolutely. Because I think this is what I always tell you. We're all here for the students. None of us would be here if it wasn't for the students. Yeah. Right? And our job is for the students. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, because, because we're we're here as an academic institution to educate and so um if if we're not serving their needs then i don't think we are really fulfilling our purpose and then you know why are we here <laughs> yeah i uh, yeah i completely agree julia i want to thank you so much for coming on for talking about your career and some of your professional experiences as well as so many wonderful resources and organizations that you are a part of. Everybody should go check out that the Women's Music Festival because it is online this year and everybody should check it out. I will include the link to the website as well so you can check out the festival and all the wonderful performances. Thank you so much. And I also, I, I did want to throw this in there kind of mm -hmm. at the end. Um, one of the things that I think was unique about me um, receiving my position is that I was very young in my academic career. 
I was, when I started, I was 30 years old when I became chair and I was not tenured. I was in my third year as a full-time academic tenure track. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's very important for us to, to be aware of kind of, I guess, stereotyping people or really, um, not giving young people a chance. I think that's that's one thing that's that's very personal to me. And I know on your show you've talked about that, about how it's important to include students and young professionals. And mm-hmm. um, ju- just because I think when p- people are younger, they have all this energy, they have all these ideas, they're willing to work. And I think it's it's really important to to kind of welcome them and and. I guess, support those initiatives. And so I always try to do that. I guess you asked me what I do to support women. I always make sure if I meet an administrator who's a young woman, I always try to reach out and I always try to make sure that if they need support, advice, resources, to make sure that that's, that I'm here for them. Um, yeah, <laughs> and that's, so, that's so great. I wish I, I had more people like that in my life as, as well as a student, someone to to talk to about these issues as well. Yes. Cause uh, the being a woman is one thing, but being a young woman in any professional field is a completely other hurdle that you have to get over. So I, I do definitely agree with that. Absolutely. So if anyone is, you know, interested in administration and, and has any questions, I would be more than happy to to speak to you and, and, you know, give you advice and insight. I'm been doing this for nine years, so I'm actually well seasoned at this point, but I remember when I started, that was the one thing that I wish I had more of is kind of um, women mentors. I had mentors who were men, actually, but it mm-hmm. would have been great to to have a woman, too, because I, I do think we have different, you know, things that we sometimes, unfortunately, have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. So, again, I want to thank you so much um, for sharing your experiences and your, and your story with us. I really enjoyed having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for all of your work. And I admire everything you're doing and everything that your guests are doing. I think they're amazing stories and bravo everyone really.